0: The scripture reading for this morning is Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. It can be found on page 984 in the Black Pew Bible. Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
1: Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your presence. God, everything that we have is a gift. We didn't come in here this morning trying to earn your favor. We, we come in here trusting that you've already done all the work and that you've welcomed us into your family. And so, God, I pray that you give us soft hearts. God, in places where we are confused or grieved or suffering, uh, will you be compassionate towards us? Will you fill us with your spirit? God, there are so many things going on um, in, a, in our church and in the world that like, do not make sense, um, and I don't know what to do. About them. Um, so God, I, we, we, we just come to you um, confessing that we, we need you. We need you to bring peace. We need you to bring peace in our lives. We need you to bring peace in the world. We need you to bring your kingdom. We need you to change us. Uh, so Lord, we, uh, we trust you this morning. And we, and we confess that we uh, were your children, that you've loved us that fundamentally what's most true is that we're loved by you. Um, So God, will you help us to understand what that means and to live a life that reflects you in your glory in the world. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are talking about what happens in a person's life when they encounter Jesus. If we are a people, if if Christians are a people who uh, claim to have experienced the grace of God, uh, met with God, then what does it look like to live a life where a change has happened in our actions, our relationships, and in our identity? What does it look like to live a Christian life? And one of the reasons, I think this is a really important question is because I've had the same kind of conversation with different people over the last few years that goes something like this. Maybe you've asked this question, maybe you've had this conversation before, but it goes something like, hey, I understand that now that I am a Christian, uh, I believe in Jesus, I have like a future hope. I'm looking forward to heaven. I know that in the end, everything is going to work out. Everything is going to be okay. Uh, but what do I do between now and then? How, how do I live my life right now as I wait for Jesus to come again and bring me to himself and uh, experience the joy of heaven? And I hear that from a couple different angles. Uh, some of that is from people who are really struggling, like have suffered really dark, bad things in their life. And they are looking forward to the decades that are in front of them and wondering, okay, what is, like, what do I have between now and when Jesus comes again and makes everything right? Like, what, what should I expect? What should my life look like? How am I going to encounter Jesus right now in my life? I hear that from another angle also. It's, it's the person who is just kind of bored and drifting, Uh, I think there are a lot of us who, uh, when we were young, when we were in college, faith felt really vibrant and dynamic and we were growing like crazy and we could see change and things were clicking together for us uh, and something happened when we got a little bit older and things didn't feel as fresh and we didn't change as much as we used to and we're kind of stuck now in a career and a family and wondering, all right, what does my life look like uh, between now and when Jesus comes again? Whatever the angle is, I think it's a great question to ask what should our lives look like right now as those who belong to Jesus? And we spent the last few sermons in Colossians looking at the results of following Jesus. So far we've seen that Jesus gives us a new identity. He invites us into a new way of living that is different than the dark and sinful way of living we had before, which he calls the old self. If you look back in verses five through 11, you see that this old self is characterized by selfishness, self-centeredness. It looks out for its own benefit and fulfillment over those who are around them. So in this old self way of living, people become objects to satisfy me. And as we do that, as we dehumanize people to use them for whatever we want to use them for, we ourselves become dehumanized and less human. That's the whole problem of living out of the old self. It's corrupted, it's passing away, it's crooked, it becomes less human. And in our verses, now there, there's there's this shift. we've been looking at uh, Paul saying, "Hey, put off that way of living. You don't belong to it anymore. There's this shift now from put off to put." on, because thankfully God has given us more than just a list of things that we need to avoid. The command isn't stop doing these things um, and stop uh, living out of your old self so that you become the new self. The, The command is, hey, you are new. You've been made new. And now there is a new way of living in the kingdom of God that leads to flourishing. And the big idea, the big thing that I want you guys to take away today is that if you are in Christ, your life right now is all about reflecting God's character into the world. Your life, the reason that you exist right now for however long you have until you die and experience God's presence in heaven is about understanding, receiving, reflecting, and embodying the presence, the character, the mission of God in this world. So instead of becoming a religion um, where you have to make sure that you avoid hell, this kind of Christianity that Paul is calling us to reflects the image of God in a chaotic and dark world. When things are um, dark and hopeless, We bring the light of Christ because we belong to him. We look like him, we smell like him, we act like him. If you belong to Jesus, no matter where you find yourself, whether you're a stay at home mom, whether you are a doctor, whether you work in the service industry, whether you stare at a screen and fill out spreadsheets all day, your life is about reflecting and manifesting the character and presence of God in this world. And here's the good news. If sin dehumanizes us, if sin twists us up, the old self is crooked, is powerless, is passing away. This new way of living is actually a way of being fully human. Because what are humans humans for? Humans are for reflecting, imaging God in the world. So this, this passage is less about hey, make sure you do all these things. There are commands in there. There are things that we are called to do. But it's more, hey, become new. Become who you were made to be In Christ. So, so what I want to do today is just look at three different aspects of the Christian life and how we can grow in putting on this new self. Three aspects of the Christian life, how we can grow in putting on the new self. And right away, when we look at these verses, we see that ultimately the Christian life is just what I've always said: it is, it is a reflection of Jesus and His character in the world. The Christian life reflects. Jesus. So will will you look down in your Bibles uh, with me? Again, if you close them, open them back up, I'm going to read, reread the first two verses. So verses 12, sorry, in verse 12. Put on then, there's a transition, we're transitioning into something new. If we're called to put uh, actions off, if we're called to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, sexual immorality, all these things that belong to the old self, the old way of living, well then you can't just take everything off, you need to put something on in its place, right? So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. All right, one big story, people. Um, this is a continuation of everything that you guys have been talking about in One Big Story on, on Monday evenings. Um, we, we, there is this immediate context of a command to a new way of living. But if you look at this first phrase, um, put on then as as What? as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved. So the Christian life is all about reflecting Jesus, and there is so much to that reality that we can just skim over uh, if we're just kind of flying through these passages, because what Paul is doing is taking Old Testament language about who the people of God are and applying it to the church, applying it to you. So if you remember Genesis 12, God makes these promises, hey, I'm going to remake and renew the world through the family of Abraham. You're going to be a blessing. You're going to push back the curse and the darkness. And in you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Fast forward to Deuteronomy and you see this exact same language that Paul is using here to talk about you. um, And he's applying it in Deuteronomy to uh, Israel in the wilderness. I'm going to turn back and I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter seven. If you want to turn there, you can, uh, or if you just want to listen to me. When uh, God calls Israel, the people, this, this people, to himself, he does it out of sheer grace. And in Deuteronomy chapter seven, Moses is narrating that to the people. And this is what he says to them about who, who, who they are. He says, you are a people, holy to the Lord your God holy. Do you see that in Colossians chapter 3? Also, you are holy and beloved. You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Why has God saved you is because he made promises and God is the kind of God who follows through on his promises. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And so before you get any kind of command in this passage, you have an identity applied to you in Jesus. Who are you in Christ? You're one who is holy, who is beloved, who belongs to God. Where are the promises of God working themselves out in the world? All these things that we've read that we read about in the Bible, well they're working themselves out right here in your life in this church, in this place. Paul is taking Old Testament language and applying it to you and applying it to us. Why is it important to start with this? It's it's a reminder that everything that we have is a gift. Everything that we have is a gift from God. So when, when we're called to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and all these other virtues that we're going to talk about, we're not called in there so, to them so that we can earn something, so that we can earn a status or a place or belonging. Um, we're called to them because, well, this is who we are, most fundamentally, chosen, called, beloved by God. And this, um, this language of putting on, putting off. It's, it's the imagery of, of taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. That's, that's the whole kind of uh, picture that's going through this entire per, uh, passage. And so I, w- I, wanna think, uh, I want you to think about it this way. There are a couple different kinds of uniforms that people can wear that communicate different things, right? Uh, so if you walk into a doctor's office uh, and someone walks in in a doctor's coat, um, you know that the reason that they're wearing this uniform is because they worked really hard for it. They went to school, uh, they excelled, they passed the tests, they went through residency, they passed board exams, they were certified, and now because they've done all this work, they're able to put on this uniform and perform different practices. And you can trust them because they've earned it. They worked really hard. Uh, and you know, if I walk in uh, to a room in a doctor's coat, you're gonna be like, what, what, what are you doing? Why, you're a fraud. Like, you did nothing. You did nothing to earn that. I'm not gonna listen to you. There are ways of putting something on that shows that you earned it. Right, That's not the kind of putting on that we're being called to right here. The kind of putting on that we're being called to, I think, is a lot closer to the ways that different clans in Scotland put on their family plaid or tartan or crests. Um, w- I went to Scotland a few years ago and, you know, I'm walking through this shop and I just see all these different kind of um, plaid kilts and I did not buy one uh, and I'm really glad it was the best decision I've ever made in my life not to not to buy a kilt Uh, but you're going through and each family has its own unique pattern and it communicates something about who they are. When they put it on, uh, you know that, oh, they, they, they belong to the Frasers because they're wearing the Frazier clothing. They belong to the McGregors because they wear the McGregor clothing. They didn't have to do anything to earn that but be born into a kind of family. And by putting it on, it's communicating, hey, I, I belong here. I embody a certain way of being in the world. I have my own uh, values because my family has values. When we're called into the family of God, it's much more like putting on that family crest, family pattern. We're putting on this way of being, not so that we can belong, but because we do belong. Because, because this, this is who God has made us to be. We belong to his family. The whole motivation for family living isn't earning, but demonstrating family values. So when you wake up every single morning in Christ, you wake up chosen, holy, and beloved, not stressing about whether or not you did enough yesterday to earn your spot, or not stressing about whether or not you're gonna do enough today to stay in God's good graces or favor. No, you, you, you're here, you belong. And because of that, we put on compassion, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience, because that's what we do in this family. That's how we are identified. It's who we are. So let me just run through these um, this this list really quickly. There are five virtues, which you know, if you read back through verses five through eleven, there are five vices that Paul lists out. Uh, so this is a new way of living, a new way of existing that contrasts to the old crooked way. And the first thing that we're called to put on is compassionate hearts. I think it's important that he says uh, from from the heart, it's a new way of being, what is compassion? Compassion is a genuine concern for the needs and suffering of others. What kind of people ought Christians to be? We're, We're people who are marked by compassion. When we see weakness, we don't despise it. We have compassion, we have concern, we have care. We demonstrate kindness, which is, which is the easiest way I think of describing this is treating other people with a Christ-like attitude. How does Jesus treat this person? With kindness. So I'm going to do what Jesus has done for me and show kindness to them. Humility is treating yourself with a Christ-like attitude attitude. And this contrasts earlier, um, in, in chapter two, there's kind of a false humility that Paul calls out. It's a false debasing of yourself, committing yourself to like fierce asceticism. Um, but Paul says, Hey, there's a way of faux humility. That's really about just drawing more attention to yourself. Oh, I'm so humble. Like, Oh, no, just don't pay attention to me. No, the genuine humility is seeing yourself the way that Jesus sees you and trusting that what Jesus has to say about you speaks a better, stronger word than what you have to say about yourself, which compels us to treat other people as more significant than ourselves. That's what meekness looks like. Meekness is not um, weakness or passivity. Weakness is a gentle way of living and being in the world that imitates the Philippians to Jesus coming, considering others as more important than himself, demonstrating humility, working for their best interests. If you want to know what meekness looks like, it looks like that. It looks like gentleness. One scholar said that meekness looks like having difficult conversations with people, and them experiencing love for them. Like there's a way that you can have a difficult conversation with someone that is just kind of out to prove that you're right. Uh, I'm gonna win this argument. I'm gonna prove that I, uh, I'm the one in on the right. You're the one who's in the wrong. Meekness will have hard things to say to another person, but the other person is gonna experience that, experience that as gentleness, as care, as genuine concern for where they are and who they are. Patience specifically has to do with demonstrating all of these things when you are being provoked or annoyed. Patience happens um, when something is happening in front of you that you're not crazy about. And yet you choose to respond with kindness and humility and gentleness. And so we, we, hear, we hear this list um, and, I th- and I think, my, my assumption is w- when, I, when I read through this, I was like, yeah, that's just what good people do, right? Um, I think we live in a world where uh, we're like, oh yeah, of course, good people are kind. Good people are humble. Good people care about other people. In Paul's day, that was not true. These were not uh, the virtues that everyone went after. It was like, oh, of course, that's just what that's just what uh, good people do. In In, in Paul's world, courage, strength, honor, representing your interests mattered way more than humility. Humility is what slaves did. Considering other people is more important than yourself is foolishness. And so the reason that that we, as the people of God, are invited into this way of being isn't just because, oh, that's just what good people do. That's just like what everyone knows good people do. No, it's, it's a distinct way of living and being in the world that reflects who God is and reflects how God treats other people. Because how, how does God respond to weakness and suffering? With compassion, with kindness. How does Jesus come into the world? With, with humility. How does God address sin? With with patience, with long forbearance. If you want to know what God's disposition towards you is like, read this list. God is compassionate from the heart towards you. God is kind, humble, meek, patient. And because we belong to him, because he has treated us with kindness, we do the same because that's the family that we belong to. That is how we act, and that's what we do. And what's really fascinating to me is that this whole list of, of virtues assumes that there is going to be brokenness, sin, and difficulty present in our relationships. It just, it, it assumes it. It's not some kind of utopian vision where it's like, hey, everyone is just gonna get along and everything is gonna be great and no one is gonna, going to hurt each other. Be, beca- be, be, like you don't need to be compassionate or patient if everyone around you is perfect. You're compassionate and patient with broken people, with people who are inconveniencing you when things are not working out the way that they should work out. And this is really clear. In verse 13, because what, what is the practical result of putting on the new self in verse 13? Well, we, we bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The ultimate sign of growth and maturity in life is an ability to be patient with people and forgiving towards people. Over the last few years, uh, there has been like just this kind of explosion of different tools and books and trends of being able to grow in self-awareness, whether that's personality tests like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. There's just like all these tools that exist now to help us understand ourselves more. And some of those are really helpful. I've grown a lot in understanding, oh, I, I, I act like that. I have a tendency towards acting that way. And that could be because of the, you know, the way that I was raised and, and all this stuff. So I am really thankful for a lot of that. The problem is, is one of the things that I see is we, we view the kind of like self-knowledge that we get from these tests as an end in and of itself. So it's like, hey man, if I can just understand how um, my Enneagram nine interacts with my Enneagram eight and how that results from my being overlooked as a child and all the woundies, then I'm just gonna be like, that's what I need. That's what I need. That's what I've been missing in life. If I can just understand that. But here's the problem. You can understand everything about you You can understand the ways that your family of origin impacts the way that you handle conflict. And if you are not growing more patient and forgiving as a person, you're not growing in maturity. You're not. You just know some more stuff about yourself. The real mark of maturity in life is are you able to forgive other people? Are you able to love other people genuinely? Are you growing more patient Not with the person who's like you, but the person who grinds your gears. Are you long suffering and forbearing? The whole point of putting on the new self is to reflect the image of Jesus in the world. And I think the most potent way that we do that is through forgiveness. Since the very beginning of the church, we've been a people who forgive because our whole self-conception rests on the fact that we're only here because we've been forgiven by God. Who who am I as a person? I'm a person who's been forgiven. And what do forgiven people do? We, 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 We forgive. And so when Rome put Christians in the Colosseum and crucified them, what did we do? We forgave. And when Dylan Roof in 2015 shot nine people at a prayer meeting, what did the church do? It, it forgave him. Like Forgiveness is in our DNA. Everything we believe rests on the fact that we're a people who have been forgiven and in turn are supposed to model, reflect, and proclaim that forgiveness absolutely everywhere we go in the world. And I know there are really dark things that have happened. There are really dark things that have happened to people in this room. And this isn't a sermon on forgiveness. If this was a sermon on forgiveness, I would spend a lot more time trying to tease out and parse out all of the different ways that we can do that. But at the end of the day, this command that we have here is really simple. If you've been forgiven, we work towards forgiveness. I love what N.T. Wright says. He, he said, it is highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive one whom Christ has already forgiven. And we live in a world right now that that is wondering how how does justice and forgiveness, um, like how do those two things go together, right? Um, And the gospel, the good news of Christianity is that through the cross of Jesus Christ, real justice has come into the world. And real justice entails the possibility of forgiveness. The world that we live in right now, uh, call it cancel culture, call it it whatever you want, we are highly aware of the brokenness, dysfunction, toxicity, problematic nature, whatever you wanna call it, of people, places, institutions. And when that's revealed, uh, a lot of times there is an outcry of like, oh, they have to pay, that has to be made right. How do you make that right? By paying. And there is a real thing, is, uh, there, justice is real, right? There is a requirement for some kind of restitution in the world. What's lacking so often though, is the possibility of forgiveness for people who have done awful things. Elizabeth Brunig, who's a, a journalist in the New York Times, she, she said something, she, she tweeted uh, before it was X, she tweeted uh, in 2020, um, there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. And then she had to delete the tweet because she got piled on uh, and swarmed for it. Hey, the message of the cross is that justice and forgiveness can go together. So we are a people of the cross. We're a people who have been forgiven and forgiveness is costly. It always costs something. When you forgive another person, and the text assumes that, that they've done something. If someone has a complaint against you, doesn't mean that you just got your feelings hurt in a way that you just need to grow in maturity and let it go. No, they're, they're assuming, hey, you've been, you've been wronged in some way. And what is the call? It's, it's, it's to pay the cost. It's to let them go free, to not enact justice on your own, whether that is in person or constantly crucifying them in your mind over and over and over again. It's, re- it's releasing them to God. And it's saying, no, I will forgive you. And I will trust that even if I never experience reconciliation, God will make this right one day, whether that is making them new through the cross or in wrath. Forgiveness is letting go of our right towards vengeance and justice and handing it all over towards God, which is a reflection of Jesus. Forgiveness, when we forgive, we are modeling the way of Jesus in the world. And the whole Christian life at his core is a reflection of Jesus. We look to live the same way he would live if he were in our shoes. And we do this because he loved us first. Which brings us to our second aspect, which is gonna be a lot faster than the first one because I spent too much time there. Um, The Christian life is defined by love. Foundationally, the Christian life is defined by love. Look at verses 14 and 15. Above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, In one body and be thankful. It's really interesting to me that Paul sets love apart from this list. Other people have wondered, what does it mean to put love on above all? You know, if this is like clothing imagery, does it mean that we just like put on, lo- love is like the overcoat that we wear, it's the blazer, it's the belt that, you know, holds everything together, it's the most important thing. Um, and I think that like that is true, but it, it's deeper than just saying, hey, uh, do all these things and then the most important thing is love. You no, know, what we see here is that love gives power to all these other things and like without love, everything is worthless. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, right? If I give everything away and I don't have love, like I don't, it's not worth anything. If you are compassionate without love, what is it worth? Like if, if you raise awareness of different causes, if you change your profile picture on Facebook to reflect the latest thing in the day, but you don't actually love those people, is it actually compassion? If you are kind without love, it just becomes this kind of faux Southern, bless your heart nicety, right? That doesn't actually do anything. If you're patient without love, it can just be passivity and withdrawing. Love is like the ligaments that holds everything together. It gives it movement. It gives it its proper expression Without love, we can be the most compassionate, showy, kind, bless your part, heart people in the world with false humility, and we'll be still living in the old self. Love is at the center of absolutely everything that we do as Christians. And James Dunn, New Testament scholar, said, at the end of the day, it's this love and only this love which is strong enough to hold together a congregation of disparate individuals. James Dunn is really smart. He's written a lot of books. He has a PhD, um, but I thought we need a little bit more. So I'm gonna quote another scholar named Mark Crow. Um, what's up, Mark? I, lo- I love this, what Mark wrote. It's uh, in the little document that we handed out at the member meeting a few, a few weeks ago. He said, love is not the vision for our church. Love governs the vision. Love is not a value, love governs the values. Love is not a guiding principle, love governs the guiding principles. Love must be a non-negotiable characteristic of the tone and tenor of our church culture. It's more important than methods, creativity, intelligence, tactics, strategy, visions, and being right. Without love, we have nothing, we gain nothing, and we are nothing. And it's worth noting again that in the ancient world, love wasn't that big of a deal. Like you love somebody, so what? It's more important that you secure your spot. It's more important that you act honorably. It's more important that you are courageous or zealous. This putting on of love is a new way of being human. Or maybe another way of saying it is, it's the original way of being human. It is a restoration towards true human flourishing. We were made from God's love. We exist by God's love. And we live most fully when we put on love above absolutely everything. And one of the reasons that Christianity grew so quickly in the early church was because they were people who were committed to loving each other and forgiven each other across social lines, across ethnic lines, across racial and gender lines. We, we loved people. And that new way brought people in. And even though all of this was considered weak, like this is just what people assume life is about now. These so-called weak, preferring another person virtues is actually what changes the world and changes us. So what do we do? We belong to the God who is love. We belong to the God who forgives. And so we love in return. And if you're wondering, that sounds cool, how do I do that? Well, the last aspect I think that we see in the Christian life is that the Christian life grows in the grace of God. Forgiveness is not natural. It's not natural to choose to forgive somebody when you are deeply hurt. It's not even natural to love people unconditionally. We need the empowering word, presence, and spirit of God to be this kind of community. And so the main application in, in, in the sermon, in, in the text is, is right there in, in verse uh, 16. But the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. People, you us, the way that we are is like we pick up things from the other people that are surrounding us, right? If you're in a place or if you're in a friend group, eventually you're gonna start acting more like the people that you're spending time with. My son Owen is in first grade and he talks differently now after a few months of first grade than he did a few months ago. Some ways it's really adorable, other ways it's like, what word did he just say? We become more like the people that we spend time with, right? And so, I think um, so often when we think about, um, you know, what does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Uh, it doesn't just mean reading your Bible. It's not less than that, though. Uh, the word of Christ comes through scripture, it comes through sermons, it comes through conversations that you have uh, with your friends about how God is moving and working in your life as you discuss scripture. When we come to that, I think so often we, we just feel really intimidated because we're like, oh, I need the right technique. I need to know, you know, what, what does this actually mean? Like, what, what, is, what is this doing? What I want you, I think, to understand is that God is the main one who's acting when he speaks. Um, you, Your growth, your maturity is not dependent solely on you getting it right. It is dependent on God's word actually having power. And so when, it, when Paul says, hey, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's saying something about who we are and what God's word does. It changes us. It gets inside of us. It's the main one acting. The spirit of God through the word of Christ changes us. It makes us more like him. The same thing is true uh, in, in worship, right? I, I think that's the whole reason why, why he says, uh, don't just do that. And don't just teach and admonish one another. Although like there's a lot that we could say about there. What, what do Like admonishing means uh, being willing to be corrected or being willing to correct another person. That's not comfortable. What would it be like if we grew in our willingness to be corrected and to maybe step in and correct other people and say, hey, the way that you're living right now, like I, do, I don't see it in line with, with, with the truth of the gospel. I don't see it as a real reflection of who God is. Could we be the kind of compassionate, kind, tender community who were committed to loving each other in that way and being willing to be taught and changed and corrected? That's, that's an aside. I got to get back. Um, as we gather together and we do that, we read the word, uh, we, we worship. God is the one who's acting and moving. God is the one who changes us. So when, when we're, we're called to this singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual uh, songs with, with thankfulness, that's assuming that God is at work when we gather together and sing. You, we're not just coming in here and singing and hoping that like the vibe is cool and we get a feeling in our chest that makes it cool and exciting. Like we trust that as we sing the truth and reality of who God is, God is actually at work making us into this kind of people, making us more fully who we are in Christ. So how do you grow in Christ? You, hold, you grab hold of the grace of God. You grab onto his word and you let the stories and the truths and the reality get inside of you. Because when it does that, you start seeing the world differently and seeing people differently and seeing them the way that Jesus sees them, which makes you act differently. God is the one who is at work. So the Christian life is a process. We grow. The whole reason that we have this is because there's an assumption that we need to grow in all these things. They are ours in Christ. We belong to him. We're part of this family. And yet, just like a kid has to be taught like the family values. Hey, we don't do that in this family. We do this in this family. Let's, let's practice how to do that. That's, that's what our life is about right now. It's growing in reflecting Jesus in every single area um, in our lives in this world. And so the final word in all of this is that everything we do should be done in the name of Jesus. Verse 17, it, 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 it sums up everything. To do something in the name of somebody else means that number one, you're representing them and their interests. And number two, you've been authorized and empowered to do so. So who, who are you? What is your life about? What should you expect between now and whenever your life ends? Your life is about reflecting the glory and goodness and nature and compassion of God into the world. In your family, as a dad, as a mom, as a brother, as a sister. In your workplace, your vocation, wherever you go, whether you are um, treating a patient or filling out a spreadsheet, we work in the name of Jesus. And that kind of life, my, my, my assumption is, um, if we all genuinely embodied love and compassion and kindness and gratitude, I didn't even talk about gratitude, but gratitude is all throughout this, um, like, if we were the kind of people who had that, like, that's where flourishing happens, that's where growth happens, that's where change happens. And we do it by holding fast to our head, who is Jesus. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know if your heart feels hard or numb. I don't know if you're tired. I don't know if you are excited. My word for you is take Jesus. Take all of him. He has compassion for your weakness. He is kind towards your failures. And he has a new way of living for you in the world that looks like him. And one day he'll come and make us all new again, make everything new, and we'll live perfectly in his kingdom forever. So Redeemer, hold on to him. Put this on. The old life, the old self died. There's a new future and new creation that is for you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you've done all the work. Thank you that you um, have called us into your family, into your kingdom. And God, I just confess right now that like I am not, uh, I'm not a patient person. Um, I need your grace. I need your word to come and change me and to convict me and to, I need your spirit to to, to fill me. And I think that that's true for all of us also. Um, like as, as we look at, at who you are and the way that you've treated us, I see so many of the ways that I fail to do that every single day. Um, so, Lord, will you help us? Will you give us grace to love like you, to forgive like you? Yeah, God. Um, like there have been some really hard things that have happened in the lives of people in this room. Um, so, will, will you come and speak tenderly to them right now? If they're wondering, like, I don't know, I don't know how to forgive that person. Um, I don't know what patience or compassion looks like. Um, God, will you, will you help us? Will you take us by the hand and will you, will you teach us? Lord, we're thankful and I want to grow in gratitude and thanksgiving. Yes, yeah, so Lord Jesus, will you come and, and uh, fill this room right now? Help us to live like you and to reflect you. In Jesus' name, amen.